Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and our guest on today's episode is Lord John Bird, the founder of The Big Issue, which turned 30 last year. Lord Bird's story is fascinating. He grew up in one of the roughest slums in London, was homeless at the age of five, and found himself in and out of prison several times before the age of 18. And it was here, in fact, that he first encountered a printing press. Today, The Big Issue is the world's most distributed street paper, of course, a project that has given millions of homeless people not just a solid income, but also a way back into society. And Bird himself is a hugely engaged and respected member of the House of Lords. Today, Lord Bird takes us on a journey from the slums of Notting Hill to the highest chamber in the land. Via the tumultuous and sometimes raucous early days of The Big Issue, the new pressures of the pandemic and an inside view on the political climate of the moment. Enjoy. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you very briefly about the Gentleman's Journal shop, our new men's style destination full of the independent brands that we love. You can find it at shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. That's shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. Head over there for special unique releases from a fine curation of brands and plenty of picks and pointers from people in the industry who really ought to know. I'm sure you'll find something you love. John, thanks so much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Do I call you John? Do I call you Lord John Bird? Do I call you the Baron? What do we go? What do you go by? I much prefer you calling me Your Eminence. But your eminence in your mouth, just John. <laughs> I'll alternate between the two then. John's perfect, I assure you. So, where are you calling us now from, John? Where, where are you? What's in the world are you? I moved to Cambridge about ten years ago. Uh, no, more than that now. 12 years ago. But I came here when I was uh, 17. I hitched up here from London to Cambridge and I decided that at some stage I would live here because I loved it. I went into a cafe and as I was leaving, the waitress came out and said, would you want to go to a party? And she was a student or something. And I said, no, I've got to go back because my mate's got to get back. So she snogged me. She grabbed me. <laughs> And she gave me a deep-tongued kiss. Fucking <laughs> Ada, I'm going to come and live here. So, years later, I'm here. Brilliant. All because of a waitress who's now probably about 80. <laughs> Amazing. Well, as I say, thank you so much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. It's a lovely note to begin on. Sure. Um, but talking of anniversaries... I suppose I should mention that it's just over now. Yesterday was the 30th anniversary of the launch of The Big Issue, the thing for which you are best known, I suppose. What did you do to mark that occasion? We're doing a lot of things. We see the whole year as the uh, 30th anniversary. So there's going to be kind of events. Uh, We've also got a film coming out, which uh, will come out sometime in spring, I think. Uh, which looks at the, you know, what the big issue's been doing and what the big issue aspires to do in the future. Uh, And that's coming out. uh, It's a feature-length film, so I think it's going to cinemas and then it might go on uh, something, I don't know, one of the platforms. And that's a very interesting uh, manifestation because it's... um, 
It's trying to explain why we're still relevant today. Because even though we've had 30 years of sometimes very expensive attempts at trying to sort homelessness out, it hasn't really been sorted out. And what seems to happen is as long as the government shells out more money, creates more housing or more hostel or more beds, and when it's doing that, then the streets empty. And then when they have austerity and they do, you know, the cost cutting, then the streets fill up again. And then when you have things like the 2008 crisis with the banks, which led to local authorities having a large amount of money stripped from their budgets, then what happens with local authorities will affect the amount of people you have on the streets. And then to add to that, if you're not supporting our children coming out of care, if you're not helping people who've left the armed forces, if you're not helping people who've come out of prison, and if you're not helping people with mental health questions, then the streets fill up. So the streets have been, they're like a kind of wave over the years. And at one stage, it looked as though it was going to disappear. But then it came back again under David Cameron uh, and the coalition government. The coalition government was completely disastrous for anybody who wanted to bring social justice to the streets. Where are we now on that wave? Um, Are we at kind of the peak of homelessness? We're kind of on the way up again, though this government has, especially with the work that it did last summer, Sorry, it was the spring before that. Uh, spring 2020, they developed this no everyone in uh, because of the COVID. What they did was they kind of put their arms around thousands of homeless people and thousands of street livers. And that had a remarkable effect on making everybody think, wow, if the government can do this in a crisis, Uh, and bring in 37,000 people from our streets, though they were only expecting 12, because obviously the counting, uh, most most street counting tends to be uh, go awry. It's never accurate. So if if you can lift up 37,000 people and put them into temporary accommodation, then maybe you can do something really big about this. So since then... Quite a number of the people who were taken up at that time have, ma- have managed to stay indoors. But then you've had the problem of people being let out again. And then, of course, you have the problem that the big issue has been fighting about, which is around uh, the people who are falling into evictions because mum and dad has lost their job and them and the kids, uh, or sometimes single people, are unable to keep their residency because the landlord wants their property back because they've fallen behind in their evictions. So those kind of things are all the elements that make up the the, the cocktail that produces homelessness. And as I said, now we're on a bit of an increase, but the government does reassure me when I went to see the minister, Michael Gove, and his minister, uh, Eddie Hughes, that they're doing all they can 
to stop this process. So there's, you know, there's signs that things could be sorted out, but obviously uh, there are many, many issues that produce people, that reduce people to becoming homeless. And a lot of those are not as of yet being sorted out. You mentioned Michael Gove there and and ministers in government, not pointing a finger at them or anyone in particular, but I remember you once said that all politicians are failures. Is that a, is that a correct quote? Well, if, I, I'm probably the kind of arsey thing that I would say, even though there are people now, because I'm in Parliament, I'm in the Lords, I must be in some ways a, a, a politician as well. I think what I mean is governments can never really sort things out because of the way that government itself is built and structured. If you look at it in a way that every political party is aspirational and ambitious until they get into power. So the opposition always will tell you all the brilliant things they're going to do once they get into power. Then they get into power and they find this very strange structure, which is called government. So you've got a treasury that absolutely hates spending money on prevention. And they go from emergency to emergency to emergency. I'm talking in the social sphere. I mean, they'll they'll spend money on an airport or a railway line or on a road, but they won't use the same forward thinking on saying, OK, why don't we recalibrate the social problems that cause poverty and invest in that? They won't do that. They won't, for instance, say we spend probably half the money we need in education on sorting out the fact that we fail 35% of our children at school, who then become the working poor, who then become the long-term unemployed, who then become the people who fill up our A&Es, who then become the people who end up in prison, who then become the people who have physical health and mental health issues. So 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 you've got a government system which has been laid down hundreds of years, 200 years. And, and you have this kind of, uh, you have a kind of square in a sense, and then a little square on the side. The square is the government and its departments. And the little square on the side is the money watchers, the treasury. And they keep saying to the big squares, shut up, we're not doing that. Shut up, we're not doing that. We're only going to spend the money when we need to. So every political party that comes into power that I have known have always accepted the architecture of government, if you see what I mean, and not said, why is it that all these government departments are like what they call silos? They're all different things. So when Jess Phillips, who's an MP, she says to me, I've got a constituent who was abused as a child, comes from poverty, has suffered domestic violence, has educational problems and therefore mental health problems. And if you actually look at all the government departments, she could belong in any one of them. But because the government departments don't work together, except they say they do, because every government department, they say two things. We work across department and we work for prevention rather than cure. And they say these things 
And that's why they're failures, because they are accepting the architecture of this perverse form of government and this perverse form of money wasting, because they don't spend the money on dismantling the problem. They spend the money largely on the emergency. So what, I don't know if you know, uh, there's a company, I think it's called Elastoplast or Band-Aid. Band-Aid and Elastoplast make plasters. And what you do is you put a plaster over a problem. You don't solve the problem. Government itself is a kind of Band-Aid manufacturer and they put them all over the place. And in my opinion, that's why politicians are failures. I don't ever get anybody who says, steps back and says, hang on, why are we so crazy? Why are we spending a billion pounds when if we'd repaired the, the roof, so to speak, 10 years ago, we wouldn't be having to redo the roof. We wouldn't have to do all these sorts of things. So to me, politicians are failures because politics is largely about failure. It's about kind of making do. It's about kind of delivering percentages, but never solving the whole problem. Let's go back to your own childhood then and your own kind of upbringing, which I've heard you speak brilliantly and movingly about before, because you were essentially homeless by the age of five, um, or at least in pretty undesirable housing conditions up in Notting Hill. Well, I wonder what your most striking memories now of that time are. Are there kind of two or three little vignettes or, or scenes you can see in your head when you think back to John at six or seven or eight, perhaps? Well, yeah, I was born into a kind of London Irish slum enclave in Notting Hill, at a time when Notting Hill was a very, very poor place. It had the highest infant mortality rate than anywhere else in the UK. So these were conditions where there were rats, mice, lice, you know, fleas. There was rattling windows. There was no heating. There was no baths. There was a toilet shared with eight other families. And it was appalling. But I can tell you, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And if people say to me, what are your memories of those days? And the memories are always of how strong our community was. You know, the street brought you up. You were brought up in a community. You may have been London Irish, but the Cockneys, uh, we, you know, we were all in it together. And it was a real strong sense of kind of solidarity. And I've never had that since. In fact, I mean, I'm in a way, I'm an exile from the slums of Notting Hill. I wouldn't want anybody, and I certainly wouldn't want my children to go back and to live in those conditions. But there was a tremendous sense of realness. And that is one of the surprising things. I mean, I remember sitting in a puddle, playing with lolly sticks, and happier than I'd been for a considerable period. I mean, that was happiness. Uh, that was my nature. Or even... The other thing, which is the weirdness of London, you could be living in this terrible enclave of need and dirt and rubbish and all that, and you can walk 10 or 15 minutes and you come to a park. So we were in West London, well, the west part of London, but then just above the park. So we were 10 minutes walk from Kensington Gardens. So in a way, I was 10 minutes walk away from where... Princess Victoria, who later became Queen Victoria, was born 
125 years before me. So this, you know, local girl makes good almost. You know, so you have this kind of contradiction. If I'd lived in the East End, where the houses were built, very, very poor gerrymandered houses, they were built for poor people to work in the docks and to work in the industries, the paper industry and all those sorts of things. Then uh, I would have had a completely different experience because that experience was the creation of very, very poor parts of London, whereas the part of London I was born into was built for posh people. But because the posh didn't move in, the houses were declared bankrupt in the 1880s and everybody went bankrupt and and then people bought it for 5% in the pound. You know, you paid uh, 25 quid for a house that was probably on the market for 500 quid or something like that. And then the landlords became the slum landlords, just crammed the poor in. So a house for one posh family might have 10 people, 20 people living. So I was in this kind of weird world, not very far from the beautiful Kensington Gardens, in a house that had cornices, that had dado rails, that had architraves, that had ceiling roses. And we were living a shitty life. We were living a desperate life. Um, there was no money. My father was uh, a labourer and he didn't get much money. And, you know, my mum and dad were having children on a regular basis. So I was the third one. And then there was the fourth one, the fifth one, the sixth one. Uh, so there was not an awful lot of money around. And also the because of the, that kind of life, and I don't think we should judge and dismiss people because of it, they had to have, how do you cope in those circumstances? So cigarettes were vitally important, vitally, probably more important than bread and butter. And also Saturday night had to be a night when you could go down the pub and you could spend part of your wages. So these were very challenging times but in my opinion, I look back and I say, God, I, I really felt I was alive. It's weird when you talk about poverty because poverty, if you can get out of it, can often be something that strengthens you or makes you aware of the well-being of other people. Because there's a lot of people who've come out of poverty who would give you your last, their last shilling. I don't see many people who have gone through comfort uh, necessarily giving their last shilling. But I, I've certainly been aided and abetted by people who haven't had a pot to piss in, if you don't mind me saying so. <laughs> do you ever go back to that neck of the woods now? Do you ever go back to the old road you grew up in? I do, but it, it's f funny. The last time I went, I had to do a little film for TV and... It was in a, a place which was just, you know, maybe 100 yards from where I was born. And it was, it just made me feel funny because even though it keeps the structure, the houses and all that stuff, um, they've all been kind of colonised by people who got a shed load of money. So when you mm -hmm. go from, you know, you could have bought Notting Hill probably for a thousand pounds at one stage and now... You, you know, you could not afford a phone box. It is so expensive. The house I was born into, which was so wretched, the council 
pulled it down in 1975, 76. Um, and they built a housing estate on it. Uh, but the house I was born into, if you'd emptied it of these poor people and done it up, uh, because they were quite sound houses, then you'd probably get £15 million for that house. So I was born into a £15 million house. But when it was, when it prob probably, you know, when you, it was full of, you know, families who were probably paying two shillings a week rent. And mm. two shillings is like 10 pence. So from poverty to plenty in th this housing area that I come from. And some of your, your formative years, a great deal of them were spent in kind of prisons or youth prisons, which was kind of counterintuitively where you got a lot of your education, I suppose. You were um, acquainted with the print shop they had there, which sounds pretty amazing, but also you learned how to read for the first time, really. Can you tell us about those years and, and what you learned there? We were made homeless because my parents didn't pay the rent. And then we lived in a void in my grandmother's cottage round the corner sounds ideal but it wasn't and then we were in a park condemned house in Bayswater where a couple of the rooms were condemned and we had two rooms and then the boys moved to this orphanage in North London run by the Sisters of Charity who were incredibly charitable but very tough because they had you know they had hundreds of these really disturbed children from largely the slums of London. And then we got a council flat in Fulham on the New Kings Road, Kings Road area. So we moved to this really strange place where there was once again plenty with, you know, surrounded also by people who had nothing. And then I started to really get into trouble. So I was done for shoplifting and housebreaking and stealing bikes and not going to school and and all that stuff and made a ward of court. So I, I started going into these institutions and boys' prisons. And one of the things was no one had really tracked my educational abilities because there was a, quite a number of people like me who really couldn't quite read properly. I mean, you could pretend you could read because you could read some words, but you wouldn't necessarily get the meaning of the sentence or the meaning of the paragraph. So I was like that until I ended up in a boys' prison when I was 15, having, uh, I'd run away from another place and smashed a car up. And I ended up at this place and I was given books by a, a screw who then said, write down the words in a pencil, underline, you know, the words that you don't understand. And that was the real beginning of when I thought I can read. And it was very, very good to admit to an adult, I have problems in reading. Now, I know now that there's a word for this, which is dyslexia. And I know you can live with it and you can improve on it. And you, if you put the work in, on many occasions, you can end up as good a reader as anybody else. And my own children, uh, my youngest son has had the same problem. Uh, and, you know, by application, he's managed to become a very good reader. But being able to read and write was the beginning of the change that got me out of the grief. Because as you mentioned about, you know, they had printing classes, they had 
bricklaying classes. They had all these other classes. And also they let me paint and draw, which I love doing. And I got together a, a portfolio that by the time I'd left after nearly three years, I could go to my local art school, Chelsea School of Art, and say, look, I haven't got any levels, any paperwork, but I've got this. And they let they got me on the course because they were so impressed by the amount of effort I'd put into it. I didn't tell them that I was banged up and there was little else you could do in the evenings, you know. And I've always been an enthusiast. If I, you know, when the big issue came along, I didn't want to do anything else. I didn't want, there was nothing. I was just so focused on it. And I'd learned that focus when I taught myself to read and write. And then I'd learned that focus when I painted and drew. And I always say to people when I'm asked at schools, how can you get out of the sticky stuff and the grief and all that? I say, well, the only way you're going to do it is by devoting yourself. doesn't matter what it is, whether it's cars, whether it's making machines, whether it's, you know, wood or whatever. If you can devote yourself and you can burn the candle at both ends, you're going to go places. And when you meet people, I love meeting people who have a, a tremendous knowledge that shows they've put the effort in and they've read and read and read and they've become an expert in a field. I met a bloke on holiday in Germany once on a campsite and he knew everything there was about caravans and their development and their suspension and all that. And I sat for hours with this guy and my wife was saying to me, you're a nutter, aren't you? I said, but this guy, you know, the precision of his thinking. I mean, I couldn't relate to what his subject was, but I thought, God, there's so many people out there who, who have this passion for things. And for you, that, that big passion, as you say, was the big issue. You devoted yourself to that. But it came out of a, one of the most turbulent times in your life, I think, when you were living up in Edinburgh and you met Gordon Roddick, who I suppose changed your life, that meeting, in a way. What, what happened there? Yeah, well, I had been in trouble. In art school, I, I soon fell under the problems that young men often have. I mean, I was 18, and I got carried away with meeting a girl and falling in love and thinking more about her than anything else. So I put all my energy into this young girl and she became pregnant and then we got married and then things started to fall apart again and that didn't last. And then I started getting into trouble with the social security and I was getting in trouble with what they call receiving, incurring a debt through fine fines which was going into restaurants and eating and getting drunk and then saying somebody stole my wallet which didn't go down very well and the police got involved so I got involved in all sorts of other very very small minor things to do with the moving around of stolen goods and stuff like that so I fell back into trouble and then I had to leave London because the police were all over me so I went to Paris and I met some very, very posh Marxists. And after a very short space of time, I'd become a Marxist, which was interesting to me because even though I was brought up as a Catholic and supposed to believe in Jesus and all that, there were a lot of people going on about they hated Jews or they hated Indians or they hated homosexuals. And there was all this kind of 
anti-other people, you know, black people, Indians, Arabs, and all that stuff. And I, you know, I was like everybody else. I expressed all of the the vile thinking that often goes with people in poverty and people who've gone through crime and stuff like that. But I got all of that knocked out of me in Paris. So I became what I consider myself now as an internationalist, which is I'm here to help people wherever homelessness raises its ugly head. And that's why we've worked all over the world. We've worked in Asia, Africa, Australia, and the Americas. The only place we haven't worked is in Antarctica, which as you know, you don't have homeless polar bears or penguins. Though obviously we're working very hard at making them homeless with all this ice melting. But the, but the thing is, I got rid of all that, you know, what they call chauvinism and uh, and it was great. It was wonderful when, you know, when I could start off with the clean slate. Anyway, I went up to Edinburgh because my wife was living up there. She gave me some money. She gave me about 50 quid to disappear until the end of the century. So that was 33 years later. I think I got a pound a year or something like that. Uh, and I went into Edinburgh and I fell into amongst some of the naughty boys and started robbing shops and stuff like that. And one night I met Gordon Roddick, who was had just come from Murrayfield, where he'd been watching the uh, rugby. And he walked into our little kind of working class, poisoned world of horrible little crooks and all that stuff. Anyway, we fell into conversation and we became mates. Uh, and then uh, I saw him when he moved back south because I moved back to London. And then I saw him when he moved to Littlehampton. I saw him when he met this lovely girl called Anita. And then I didn't see them for 20 years. And by which time he'd become a multimillionaire with him and his wife having started the body shop. I then approached him and we became mates again. I started working again. And it was him who came up with the idea of a street paper because he'd seen one in, in New York in 1990. And he spoke to this guy, he said, why are you selling the paper? He says, well, I've been in and out of the prison system. If I get nicked again, they're going to throw the key away. So I became homeless. I left the area where I came from. And now I sell this paper and I keep out of trouble and I send my daughter some money for her education. And Gordon thought this was brilliant. And we must remember that at the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s, there was enormous amounts of people on our streets. I mean, there were thousands and thousands. I mean, I think around the West End, there was probably 6,000 people sleeping rough. So when people say we've gone back to 1990 and 1991, we have not. And I hope we never get back there. There was so much poison. You know, there was rent boys and rent girls there was muggings, there were aggressive begging and all that. And all these people who had been shaken out of the system under the Thatcher regime really were people who the police were then and the local, you know, the Evening Standard was saying, we've got to do something about this. So when Gordon saw this street paper, he thought, why don't we have a street paper here? And I didn't want to get involved because I didn't want to go back to to homelessness, and I, to be quite honest, I didn't want to get in with, dare I say, you know, white, middle-class, well-intentioned liberals who 
would be crying all the time because they felt sorry for the homeless. I never felt sorry for a homeless person in my life because you've either got to use your energy in trying to sort them out or you use your energy in feeling sorry for them. And I wanted to do things practically. So I didn't really want to get into charities and all that do-gooding. And eventually Gordon said, well, why don't you start a business? So I started a business and we made it so that all the profits uh, that went back into the project and weren't creamed off by anybody who owned it or whatever. So we did it as a social business. I think, well, it, it wasn't called a social enterprise, but that's what they call them now. And Gordon it changed me remarkably. He brought me out of the shadows because nobody wanted to talk to John Anthony Bird. I was a printer. I made a decent living. You know, I was trying to do things politically, socially and all that. And nobody was, you know, they didn't give a toss for me. And then suddenly Gordon put me in this, you know, spotlight. And I then had to be a different kind of person, which I found very difficult because I like to have a drink and I like to make a lot of noise in pubs. And I like to be, you know, one of the lads. And if you're trying to do that and work with homeless people and employ people, it doesn't quite go down well. So over the years, I found it quite difficult playing the straight professional. And uh, and that has been, fortunately now, because the big issue is, is, is an enormous creation and it works all over the world and it works in homelessness, but it works in homeless prevention and it works... Uh, in investing in communities. The big issue, Invest, is an enormous business that works with 450, 550 social businesses around the UK. So th the little thing that we started has become very grown up and very professional. And now I'm just the pretty face, you could say. What do you remember from the first issue what what was it like around that time i've heard some pretty colorful reports of what went down well i mean i'd been a printer and i'd employed a mate of mine who often didn't turn up and there's a wonderful story about how his dog turned up once uh if i'm allowed to tell you it <laughs> <laughs> he arrives one day with it with with his with his dog his dog always came he opened the door the dog goes through the gate to the print shop where i am and gets in his little corner. And then my mate thinks he can't find the dog. So he thinks he's left the dog at home. So he goes <laughs> he goes home to Enfield in, in the East End and, and can't find the dog and rings up the police and all that stuff. And then he rings me up and says, I can't come in today, I've lost my dog. I said, your dog's sitting in that bridge shop. It's wonderful. So I didn't really... So that was my mate. So you can see it might have been difficult. So I never knew anything about employing anybody. And here I was at the age of 45, going from me, my mate and his dog, uh, to employing 10 people, 20 people, 50 people, 100 people, and then working for on behalf of thousands of people who were after, you know, something that would help sort their lives out. So... I wasn't, you know, I was crap, to be quite honest. And I was, I spent a lot of time shouting uh, and swearing at people. And I think I was in a kind of mad panic. Uh, 
but I did believe that we were doing something which was very, very useful because you see there were 501 homeless organisations in London alone and not one of them gave homeless people the chance of making a legitimate income. So if they were on the gear or they were drinking or, or gambling, they were robbing and stealing and doing all sorts of, or prostituting themselves in order to feed their habits. And my argument was a very simple thing. Why don't we give them a legitimate means of making their own money? So if they spend it unwisely on poisoning themselves, at least the only person they're harming is themselves. They're not harming the public. So therefore, if they're not doing that, then what you're doing is you're decriminalizing them. And then you can begin a process of helping them get out of the grid. It was exactly my life. My life had been blagging and, you know, scrounging and begging and robbing. But when you're in a situation where you can pay for your own drink and you don't have to do these things, then your life kind of thinks, oh, yeah, this is, this is probably the place where other people should be. But in the early days, we put it together in a really weird way. I mean, it's people I met, I met people in a pub or whatever, and I said, oh, you got a job, you know. And Gordon said to me, start with your family. He said, exploit your family. Get your wife doing things because at least you can trust them. And if, if it doesn't work, you can just say, sorry, back to the drawing board. So I took my wife on part-time. My son came in and started doing the computer stuff, entering copy. And I got my youngest brother running the distribution. And he was brilliant because he was a very loud, rude van driver, a kind of white van man. And he was brilliant because, like me, he wasn't sentimental about people in poverty. And he, he was wonderful and they loved him. Uh, and he, probably more than anybody, helped us through all of those early stages when we were confronted by homeless people who often wanted to rob us off us or they didn't want to pay for the papers or they wanted to use a bit of blackmail or a bit of strong arm stuff. So we had to be really alert. And we had to do things like saying, if you attack us, we'll attack you. So you hit us, we'll hit you, which you can't do that if you're a charity. You can't employ a baseball bat to keep peace. You have to do other things. So it was a very rough time. Um, and out of it all, we produced a publication that a lot of people have looked at since and said it was like some very, very committed, you know, six formers had put a magazine together. <laughs> I wrote out the spec for the first major article and I got a leading person in homelessness, Nick Hardwick, who ran Centerpoint, to write it up. And I said, the article's called, But Why Don't the Homeless All Go Home? And what he did was explain why the homeless can't go home. And it was a brilliant launch pad of what we were trying to do. And the magazine has grown strength and strength over the years. It's got lost on occasions and then it's come back and, and we're now in the process of reinventing it and making it even more relevant. What was the reaction then from the kind of rest of the media bubble, the other magazines, other papers? Were they threatened? Were they patronising? Were they snobbish? Were they supportive? What, what do they think about it? That's an extraordinary thing. You know, I'm in the House of Lords 
And when I went in, I was stopped every three seconds by a peer or an MP, and they all had, nearly all, not always, had a positive story to tell me about the big issue, a vendor or an ex-vendor or something like that. And what was so extraordinary in those days, the public and the press really got behind it. I mean, I was astonished at the amount of passion people felt. I mean, even the old bill, you know, even the police. I, one occasion, I, I had to go and take some guy's badge off him in Covent Garden, and I was about to do it. And this copper walks up, gives this guy, this very troublesome guy, a sandwich and a coffee, and then starts talking to him. So I stood back, and when they'd finished, I followed the copper, and I said, excuse me, I said, uh, uh, you were just talking to that bloke, and he said, yeah, he said, he's he's a big issue vendor. And I said, well, I started the big issue, and he, this copper embraced me. He said, that bloke was an absolute arsehole up until a couple of weeks ago, and suddenly something's happened, and he's now, he's not shoplifting He's a big guy. He's not bullying people. He's not being what he called an aggressive beggar. He's not sitting by the ATM with his hand out. And he's something's happened. And he said, what's the magic? And I said, it's not magic. What it is, he's realised he'll make more money if he's polite and generous and thoughtful and wish people good day, even though they don't buy the paper, because he is in the marketplace and... It's like you and like me and like everybody. We're all in the marketplace. And if we want to get more of from the market, we have to behave in a way that people say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go back there. I'm going to go and talk to that person. I'm, and, oh, yes, oh, I've got this thing that I want to do. I'll ask John Bird to do it because he's such a lovely chap. And all this. So it was extraordinary. And the press, I, I mean, there was some press, I mean, uh, professional press uh, that, slagged me off, said that I was a, I was like a second-hand car dealer. What was I doing trying to help homeless people? But mainly, it was pretty good. It was, it was extraordinary. I mean, the public, they fell in love with the idea that you can't really talk to a beggar because if you do, the beggar will only tell you how bad their lives are and they're, on a, they're going down the hill and you can kind of help them you know, stabilise them or stop them for a moment. But when you're talking to a big issue vendor, you're talking to somebody saying, I'm trying to sort my life out here. So it was a totally different buzz. And I'm astonished at the the dedication. I get loads of letters from people who, well, I get letters from people saying, I, I'm not doing enough for the homeless because they've spoken to a, a big issue vendor. But I don't ever get an awful lot. Um, every now and then I get somebody saying, you know, can you get rid of that vendor because he's shouting too loud or, uh, you know, I've been, you know, they didn't give me the correct money when I asked for change. But mainly it's people who were there for the vendors. Yeah. A lot of it, as you say, comes down to conversations, not about the money. It's the fact that people have an opportunity to chat to people. Is the fact that it's a magazine a part of that? Because you could effectively have people selling anything, whether it's biscuits or coffees. Why, why does it need to be a magazine, do you think? Why is that part of the magic? That's another interesting point. I mean, if Gordon had come back to me and said, look, I've been to California, I went to San Francisco, I saw this thing called Just Desserts, and there is a place called Just Desserts, <laughs> which is a yeah. cake shop, 
and just deserts is employing homeless people, people out of the you know penitentiaries, you know people in poverty. And if you said to me, I want you to start a cake shop, I said, well, I don't know anything about cakes. I know about printing. <laughs> if you want a magazine, and because the concept in New York, that Street News, had started as a magazine, we've always been a magazine. Also, the other thing is that the magazine does give you a chance to kind of look at many of the issues, not just around homelessness, but around homophobia, around, you know, gender issues, around historical issues, around education, around employment. So it enables us to, to have a voice. But I'm not kidding myself. I think the greatest lure to participating in the big issue experience of buying the paper from the vendor or buying it from a subscription, if, if, if you can't get your hands on a vendor, is the fact that you, in a way, you have a kind of relationship with somebody who's trying to do something with their lives. And it's real. And with begging, I mean, I was a beggar and I was brilliant as a beggar. Brilliant. I mean, my my mum and dad, they died every day. Uh, and the limps, I mean, I had limps in both legs, you know, because when you're begging, you have to, the only thing you've got to sell is pity. So therefore you have to up the pity. So begging, in a sense, changes two people. It changes the person who gives because they're saying, oh, I'll give, knowing full well that they're not, it's not going to get them off the street. So they have to kind of lie a bit to themselves that I'm helping this person because they're only helping them to come back the following day. And the person who is dejected because they end up begging has to present an even greater level of dejection. Uh, we've co converted thousands and thousands of beggars into big issue vendors and then moved on. I met somebody quite recently who embraced me in the strand, almost broke my back. He was about six foot six, put his arms around me, kind of, you really helped me and my family. And it was about 25 years ago. And he was a beggar and we turned him into a big issue vendor. And then he got a job working in, on a building site and he began to get himself straightened. And he wouldn't have had that if, it, if he'd just been a beggar because, you know, beggars don't end up normally being transformed from the streets. No. I've heard you say before that, that just three nights sleeping rough on the streets is enough to kind of change your, your psyche in quite profound ways. And one of the interesting things I heard you say is that truth is the first thing that goes. People's relationship with truth becomes very distorted quite quickly. Can you explain what you, you mean by that? Yeah, when you are abject, when you're lost, when you're on the streets, when you're ducking and diving, bobbing and weaving, you've got nowhere to sleep, you've got no income, you probably haven't got the right clothes, uh, you're dirty, you're fed up, uh, and what you really need is you need something that can either get you a drink or get you a bit of food, or, you know, some cigarettes and all that sort of stuff. So therefore, you, it's like a, an arithmetical puzzle. You haven't got what you need, uh, so therefore, how do you get it? So to get it so that you can pay the people in the shops to give it to you, you have to have something to sell. So the first thing you do is you have to sell people 
pity. They have to be so moved by you that they will aid you. And what's also interesting is that where beggars do particularly well are in the city of London or around the city of London when you have that Christmas party period, you know, this December, because people come out of their Christmas party, they've had maybe too much to drink or a lot to drink, and they suddenly feel sentimentally committed to people sleeping in the streets. They don't feel that in January, and what they do is they get down there, kneel down, put their arms around them, give them money and all sorts of things. So that if the person wasn't sitting down looking pathetic and was standing up saying, oh, by the way, I'm a bit short of money, any chance of you, you know, people wouldn't respond. So you've got to change your story. And interestingly, I did a program about 10 years ago, which was called Famous Rich and Homeless. And the program put people who came from comfort and worked in the media and all that, we put them out on the streets. And one particular woman, I got a phone call at about five in the morning from the uh, production company, said, you've got to get down to Old Street or somewhere like that, uh, because you've got to discipline this well-known personality, because she'd just been uh, taking money off people by lying. So I went down and there was this rather wretched, well-known personality in the media who had been told by the production company, how dare you tell lies to people who've come out of an office party or something like that? How dare you say you had to run away from home because of domestic violence and all sorts of stuff like that? So I walked up to her and shook her hand and said, congratulations, because what you've done is you've just proved that the first thing that goes out the window when poverty comes in the door is the truth. And that is one of the big problems, because we know darn well that the streets are full of people who are running away from domestic violence. That's one of the big reasons why you see women on the streets. We know that people are have been beaten. We know that there are young guys who have been driven out by their family because they've come out and admitted that you know that they're gay or something like that we know these kind of things but we also know that those are the only kind of stories that will often get people to put their hand in their pockets so there are people there who say well i'm going to exaggerate the situation that i'm in i mean i'm sure there are big issue vendors who also do that because that's another way of selling more copies but it's not the norm and the norm unfortunately with poverty on the streets is one is obliged in poverty to get rid of the truth as soon as possible. You mentioned briefly then that there had been some moments when the big issue had lost its way. I don't know if you mean editorially or, or financially or kind of managerially. What what have been some of the challenges, the, the darkest moments you think over the last 31 years? Oh yeah, well I mean we lost our way financially. We've lost our way in terms of the editorial We've lost our way managerially, you know. I've employed people who should never have been given a job and never been given responsibility. And that is, unfortunately, what happens when you run a large business and when you run any business. You say, oh, God, I wouldn't take that person on again if I knew. So we have got lost. We've also got lost because when you've been going for so long and 
you're living in a crisis, the big issue is a permanent crisis, then sometimes you kind of try and get away from the crisis. You try and move away from it because you just need a break from it. And we therefore have to develop a realisation that any organisation can become bureaucratic, can become inward looking rather than looking at the reason why you're there. So you can lose your way. You know, there are doctors and hospitals that lose their way uh, who are supposedly there for the benefit of others. And there are lots of charities that have lost their way over the years. So we've been as guilty as, of, of that as other people. What happens with us, we have managed to reorientate ourselves. And that is largely because we are very, very self-questioning. I mean, I'm very self-questioning. I mean, on occasions I've said, I don't want anybody selling the big issue in five years' time because I'm cheesed off with having to have people on the streets, which is a very inclement and difficult place for some people to operate. So we've tried to move beyond the streets. That's why we created Big Issue Invest, which is to invest in businesses, social businesses, that prevent people falling into homelessness. So that's one of my big obsessions is prevention. But on occasions I've thought, you know, we can do better. And then the mother of invention, necessity, comes along. And I'll give you the example of 2020 when the COVID hit us. Financially, we lost everything because we have never been one of those businesses that has built up social businesses. We're not like a charity, because we're not a charity, we're a social business. So we run it very, very tight. So we're either just above or just below, you know, the kind of profit line. So we do it that way. So we kind of, sometimes we get a bit above and then we go down and all that. And the reason for that is because we do want to keep us close to the idea of the crisis rather than build up reserves. If you build up reserves, they should be spent for the benefit of the people you're working with. So there's all sorts of problems around that. And of course, we're a kind of business that, you know, we're only a couple of paychecks away from poverty ourselves if we don't sell papers. So when COVID hit, we couldn't sell papers. So we had to appeal to the public to take out subscriptions taking out subscriptions and getting money. We got money from the Times. The Times decided, we didn't ask them, that they would raise money for our benefit and they gave us money. So it meant that we could survive. But there are other times when I remember 9-11 nearly completely destroyed us because after 9-11, you know, we lost 40% of our street sales and 50% of our advertising. And it looked as though we were, you know, going under. And every now and then I've had to say, well, not, I think only twice, I've said to Gordon, would you help us? And all we needed was guarantees. Then we managed to trade out of it and we didn't need the guarantees. So we've been stealthy, we've been clever. But with the 9-11 thing, we had uh, a situation where I had to go to the staff and say to them, look, we need to cut the staff because like the Guardian, like the Observer, like the, you know, the Times, uh, people are cutting because you've got a smaller business. 
we then ran into problems because I managed to get nine people to take voluntary redundancy and they were all in the editorial department and the reason they wanted to go was because they thought we were going to move the editorial department to Manchester or somewhere else or Scotland anywhere. So we ran into managerial problems which were really caused by the fact that instead of having a business that was so big it was you know it shrunk by almost 50% but we managed to get out of it and now we're relatively healthy because we managed to rebuild ourselves after the COVID uh, and also because we've, um, you know, we've managed to get subscriptions to people who can't get hold of the paper uh, because there's no vendors near them. What do you think it would look like if you were starting the big issue now? 2022 is a very different place to, to 1991. Would it still be a magazine? Would it be some kind of digital product? And I guess the part B to that is, would you personally still start it, knowing everything you know now and, and all the ups and downs? Is it still a worthwhile thing to, to get into? If I was starting the big issue now, there's, I, well, I know so much more than I knew then because I was very green behind the ears. I would certainly do it in a different way. I think the idea of working with people who are on the streets uh, or are in transitional housing or, you know, who have accommodation issues, I think I would still want to keep a direct relationship where they could enter the marketplace. I think I would tend to try and work digitally as well, and we're doing a lot of that stuff. I would tend to want to do other you know, taking other experiences that I've had around building social businesses, I wouldn't change an awful lot. I would think that it would be a worthy thing. I'm proud of what we've achieved. I do realise that uh, now we have many, many different threats. And probably the biggest threat that we've got is the arrival of new people in, into homelessness through the COVID loss of jobs, a half a million people who lost their jobs. And we've been working on trying to support them. Also, because what I have now, because I'm in the House of Lords, and because I went into the House of Lords not to make the poor more comfortable, but in order to get rid of poverty, I've even described it very graphically as slitting the throat of poverty, by prevention. It took me a long time to realise that we were working outside the box. You know, people kept saying, John Bird, you know, he's brilliant at working outside the box. And the only reason people say that is because the box isn't working. And now my understanding of how bad the box is, how bad government spending is, with the best will in the world, it doesn't matter what political persuasion, they're very bad at stopping people falling into the grief. And I therefore think the magazine would be much, much more politically orientated uh, and would be more critical of what you might call the siloization of social problems. So I think it would be different that way. Whether it would work economically so that it could wash its own face, I'm not so sure. We were gifted a crisis that we could respond to. And if you don't have a, a crisis that is so clear 
what was clear at the beginning of the 90s was that there were thousands and thousands of homeless people and they were the numbers were increasing and the government was beginning to respond to that but it still needed people like us to come along and give the homeless a hand up not a hand out and I don't know if there's that clarity now I think there are too many things happening there's so much observation I mean everybody seems to have an opinion now you know through um, social media and all that I think we lived in a period of a kind of unity whether you were left right or center let's do something for the homeless and I don't know whether we've got that unity of thinking now if government is is not set up as we as we've discussed to to really deal with this stuff is there something that individuals can do in a city like london it often feels that the kind of inequality is so stark and and so in your face that it's sometimes easier to bury your head in the sand and certainly middle class you know very privileged people like me feel a guilt but it's often easier to deal with that guilt by ignoring the problem than by fixing it um, which I hope is some kind of admission. But what, what can people who are listening to this, who will be privileged people by their nature probably, what could they do today, tomorrow, next week, do you think? Well, you know, I speak in a personal capacity now because even though I'm the mm. founder of The Big Issue and it's kind of titular head or whatever the term is, I think we have to reinvent politics and we have to realise that that representational politics has its limitations and that means that you know the fact that uh, that you put a cross in a box every four or five years i don't think is enough and i think even now even more and i think we need to get more into participatory democracy i mean for instance we've had a lord mayor system we have had a mayoral system in london and what really astonishes me because I mean I saw it all happen and on occasions I've been a, a mayoral candidate myself and I saw it happen and I thought when the first incumbent Ken Livingston came in at last we're going to have somebody who's going to stop the fact that houses are becoming so expensive and we're going to have all these big carbuncle offices all over the place if we don't watch out I thought we were going to have the re-emergence of London government because London, interestingly, was the last major city in the world to get local democratic government. And when Margaret Thatcher took that away from us and closed down the LCC for very vicious political reasons, she deprived us of local government. So what it meant that all sorts of things could happen in London and there was no democratic response. We couldn't do anything about it. And I thought bringing back the mayor is going to mean that we can vote for somebody who's then going to be a toughie when it comes to the speculators and, the, and all those people. But actually what's happened is that they've had carte blanche. They can do what they want. We have a London that is there geared for highly privileged people. And I'm not talking about probably your listeners, I'm talking about highly, highly privileged people who can build office blocks, who can uh, buy land from the local authority, who can invest in social housing and make shed loads of money, turn it into social businesses, who can 
you know, do all sorts of things. And who can overheat the economy of London to such an extent that it becomes a very, very uncomfortable place for everybody who's not a millionaire or a multimillionaire. And this is, we've, we've had, we've got Sadiq Khan, we've had Boris Johnson, we've had Ken Livingston. And if they're that impotent, then what they should be doing is saying, we've been given power, but we can't use it. We've been given the authority based on the amount of people who voted for us, but there's nothing we can achieve. And that should have been the message that should have been sent from the very beginning. If democracy is a sham, then we need to scream out. And one of the big shams is the fact that London is now a place where most people, middle class or whatever, cannot afford to live. And it's, it's only a rarefied group of people who can do it. I mean, I used to deliver meat and vegetables and wine around the Chelsea and the Knightsbridge and all those areas. And whenever I walk around there, there's always somebody rebuilding some building. So there's all that constant rebuilding in order to create more wealth, you know, more underground car parks or cinemas and all sorts of things. Like I mean, and blocking up the streets and making, you know, skips and everything all over the place. I mean, this, you know, what is that to do with the quality of life of London? I personally would do some really draconian things. And one of the things I would say is I would want to underline the fact that space is infinite in a city. We could have more space outside of cities and all that. And we need, the city needs to be run for everybody, not just for that very small group of people who, you know, millions behind them. It's a joke that you can move into a house, and I know loads of people, a house that I was involved in that was bought in the late 70s for £12,000 could not change hand now for under £2 million. Now, the people sitting in that house, they're not £2 million millionaires. I mean, they could make a killing and move out, but that house isn't worth that money. That house is only worth that money because the banks, 80% of the money the banks lend are lent for the buying and selling of property. And only 20% is spent in investing in new businesses and in developing businesses and developing work and all that stuff. You compare it with Germany, Berlin, 80% of the money that the banks lend in Germany is lent on the creation of businesses and the creation of, of new technologies and all that. And only 20% on the spending uh, to do with the buying and selling of property. So what you've got is an unsustainable, overheated economy. And it's so interesting that many other economies around, many other cities around the world are suffering the same. But London almost led the way. It almost led the way. It's appalling that, you know, a two-bedroom flat could cost you just short of a million pounds unless you're yeah. right out yeah. on the edge. Anyway. It's been brilliant talking to you and I wish we could talk more, but I really appreciate your time. And thank you so much for, for telling us your story. It's been fascinating and inspirational. Thanks, Joe. Cheers.
Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.